Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 110 my name is Dr. David C. Noe. I'm here in Vomitorium South, in the basement, in the bunker, the uh, headquarters of Reformation Heritage Books, who has loaned this facility to us to record with my fabulous friend and all-around great co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm feeling good today, Dave. It's been, we've been away for a bit. We had, you had some... couple weeks. You did some traveling. And, yes. And it's been uh, trying to kind of find a, a time where we can do this. So yes. It feels good to be back down in the bunker. Yeah, I've been burning some midnight oil, some uh, early morning oil, burn some oil in the afternoon. Man, are you running out of oil? There's just a big black cloud <laughs> hovering over my house as it drifts off into the distance. Right. You have a, a pretty substantial translation project that you... You are yes, near, I do. You are nearing uh, completion. Yeah. I am, thankfully, yes. And that uh, deadline is looming over me. Yeah. So uh, I've had to put in a lot of time on that. And that has cut down um, a little bit on our, our time for other things like podcasting. Mm -hmm. But you've been busy too, I have been right? busy, yeah. Now, a new semester starting and my kids seem to be involved in everything. Mm -hmm. Robotics and basketball and meetings and right. music teams. It's a, Plus you got to eat, you got to sleep. You got you got to do all those stuff too. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's been really busy. Right. But I'm glad we, we have carved out this time. We got it. Um, are you ready for this episode? Um, I think so. Okay. I think I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Okay. Which is an odd thing for people to say. How could they know that? <laughs> as ready as you'll ever be. It is right? kind of an odd phrase. I yeah. think so. I don't like it. There's no much. There's no more additional readiness you could add with just a little more time. This is the this is the apex. This is it. This is the top. Yeah. The fastigium. Yeah. Throw in some Latin there. What are we talking about? We are diving into book nine of the Aeneid today. So How many books does this epic have, by the way? Are we are we got, nearing the end? Well, it's got twelve. Okay. So that means we're probably maybe fifty three episodes away from <laughs> from getting through this. Yeah. Now, Ovid, he's got 15 in his Metamorphoses, mm -hmm. right? And uh, they, they say maybe that was inspired by Ennius, you know, the ar the archaic poet. Right. His Annales apparently had 15 books. Yeah. But I'm guessing maybe he just got to 12 and he thought, um, you know, that's where Virgil stopped. I can do three more. I think he was just trying to one-up Virgil. Oh, absolutely. All right. He just cranked out three more. So we're in book nine. We are in book nine, right. And, and what's that going to be about? Well, it's starting to get, uh, it's starting to get battle-y. Okay. Right. So this is the, the Iliadic half. Right. That we're in. And so things start to heat up between the Trojans and the Rutulians and the allies on either side. And it's about to tip over, boil over into uh, a full-scale war. Okay. But we have some we have some uh, episodes in, in Book 9 which are um, kind of sad and tragic and yes. bloody. Um, this uh, this uh, episode featuring Nisus and Euryalus is, right. is uh, a centerpiece here. Yeah. So just like in Book 4, we had the terrible tragedy of Dido mm -hmm. as she went to her doom. In a memorable episode entitled, Come on, Baby, Light My Pyre. Oh, nice. With that, a nod to the doors. That's right. You say nice, but you thought it up. That's right. Well, I'm, I'm just kind of patting myself on the back. Yeah, a little yeah. self-congratulations. <laughs> right. Uh, inspired by Euripides and Sophocles and Aeschylus, the three greats there, we see uh, Virgil channeling his tragedic uh, emotions, right? Showing his chops. And now we have kind of a mini tragedy, don't we? We do. And I think it has this in interesting layer that is, it's uh, clearly modeled, at least at some point, on book 10 of the Iliad, mm -hmm. the so-called Dolanea, oh, yes. which is an episode which many now believe to be a later interpolation. Really? Yes, that it doesn't fit. It doesn't belong. Interpolation? Yes. So the, that is was, that like a 
Is that like a kung fu move or something? It, it's a you know sliding, inserting something in later. All right, right. And so um, I think it's I think you could read this episode as um, as Virgil in some ways kind of redeeming. Uh, not redeeming, but maybe almost correcting that episode Interesting. in the Iliad. But so we'll, you think you think he's deliberately to to get ahead of ourselves? Mm-hmm. We can catch up with ourselves later, maybe. Yes. As I see myself recede into the distance, <laughs> uh, you're saying that maybe Virgil is deliberately thinking about the Dolinea episode and saying, "I can do that, and I'll do it a little better in this respect." Yes, it, it better or make it or make it fit more. Right. We, we could talk about the details okay. of this, but. Um, uh, Virgil adds like a, a part B to the to the Dolinea in 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 a way that Homer never really um, approaches, mm. and so I think he maybe he completes the scene, not maybe he tries to improve upon it, but he completes the scene. Interesting. All right, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yep. So we got a shout out. Yeah, we do. Who, uh, yeah. Who is who is this? Uh, uh, this is a, a lovely young woman, uh, Carrie Benetter Schwartzwelder. Okay. So when I knew her, she was simply Carrie Benetter. Mm-hmm. She was my student in um, Virginia, in uh, the place where I taught there, and she's since been married, and now she's uh, Carrie Schwartzwelder, and uh, she shares this shout out with us. It's okay. quite long. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And um, we're gonna have to be a little bit selective here. So why don't you start it out? Well, at first I gotta say she's got a great name. Yeah, it, it's like it, it, it's, it comes off the tongue, staccato. Yeah, you're right. Harry Benetter Schwartzwelder. Boom, boom, boom. Exactly. You know, it's right. Almost sounds, uh, it sounds almost like Harry, Harry Potterian. Really? Yeah. It's, it's, okay. It's, it's a great name. All right. All right. Um, yeah. Let me I'll, let me start us off. All here. right. So it says, I enjoyed taking Latin back in the day, though I would not have chosen to take it if it had been optional. Okay. So I like that because mm-hmm. Latin should not be optional. It should be obligatory. Exactly. Mandatory. Everywhere. Right. 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 And listening to the podcast feels like auditing a more openly humorous version of your class that you're being referring to, to me. you. Yes. I, I don't like where this is going. A more openly humorous <laughs> version. Okay. Uh, don't take it personally. All right. right. Gone are the deadpan jokes followed by the awkward silence of students unsure if laughter was appropriate. Replaced with actual laughter, puns, and dare I say, dad jokes. So yeah. so what's this with the dad jokes? Help me understand this. Well, I guess a lot of people, uh, um, I know you're a big fan of, of, of puns. Right? Yes, it's I am. Right? Paranomasia. Good good puns can be very clever. Yes, but I think for thank a lo- you. For a lot of people, puns are considered a, a low form of humor. But those people are wrong. I know. It's, it's an art form. It is. And so it's often meant to write it. Oh, it's, it's a dad joke. Yeah, but what's wrong with that? The word dad, that's good. And the word joke is good. You put them together, dad joke, what's there not to like? Well, I think it comes around to this idea of, of kind of the archetype, which I'm not a fan of. Like okay. Dad as buffoon. Oh, yeah. Dad is kind of... You're be- thinking of Michael Gross uh, oh, oh, on <laughs> Family Ties. I'm thinking of that. The original buffoon. Or you know, every commercial that, that features a father. Right. It's, it's just some kind of couch moistening moron who can't figure out, you know, how to use a, a right. socket wrench. Walks into the kitchen and, you know, puts the dirty dishes in the refrigerator. Right. So I think, see, like the dad joke, you're right. I the, see. No, what, what's wrong with dad? I think it's dad as buffoon. I see. It's kind of hopelessly okay. out of touch and so and it's you know any kind of joke that elicits a groan instead of an right. actual laugh okay that's uh, it's I, I find sometimes people and i mean especially myself are too stingy in their laughter hmm. right if it's a pun yeah just humor it a little bit yeah. just, just laugh let it go i would say that you are stingy in your laugh that's what i just said okay. <laughs> i am stingy in my laughter Which, me especially okay i got you but you think people are too stingy yes okay <laughs> <laughs> It, it all depends on how the joke's delivered. I don't want someone telling me I have to laugh. Okay, I got right? you. Right. I don't like to be told that. But if you deliver it with a you know a little bit of self-effacement, mm-hmm. then I'm all over it. And right. That's funny, no matter how lame it may seem to others. Right. Now, do you remember these these episodes that she refers to back in class, where you would you would drop these jokes and students being unsure of 
Yes. A, I mean, I've had that like, before a class kind of gets to know who oh, you are. Yeah. And if you make a joke, they often, they kind of come with the assumption, this is a class, this is a professor, this this is going to be serious. This is serious. Right. Well, and I usually wear a tie to class. Yeah. I demand a lot out of the students in terms of attention and so forth. Sure. But that's so much more fun than when you say something <laughs> funny, because you could tell, you know, they're, they're laughing, they're chortling a little bit, mm-hmm. but they don't know what to do. So you find that discomfort very entertaining. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I had one today, if I may. We'll get a little bit off subject here. Yeah. Uh, we were reading some Greek at the seminary where I teach, and we came across um, the story of Tantalus. And it mm-hmm. was about Niobe. Let's see. It was Amphion. Amphion uh, married um, Niobe, the daughter of Tantalus. And we were talking about, you know, Tantalus's crime, you know, fed his son uh, Pelops to the gods. Mm-hmm. And everybody was onto it and didn't, you know, take a bite out of Pelops except for Demeter. Because she was a little dense, right? Yes. And took a big chunk out of his shoulder. Right. And then he had to give a, an ivory prosthetic. Exactly. Right? That's where I went. And he had an ivory prosthetic. And I just commented, it, it was difficult for him to get through TSA <laughs> or customs. They would say, do you have anything to, cl- to declare? And he would say, I have this pre-man ivory shoulder. Is that okay? <laughs> and most of the class didn't laugh because they didn't know if I was being serious. But, uh-huh. But there were some, you know, chuckles and smiles uh, into the into the notebook. Had you not showed this side of yourself to this class before? Only a little bit. Okay, you okay. got to dribble it out a little bit at a time. Right, right. Because if you, you know, try to be, um, you try to make them laugh all the time, they won't learn anything. Yeah, so yeah, I got gotcha. you. It's gotcha. a delicate balancing act. But back to Carrie. Back to Carrie. Carrie continues. By the way, when my teaching, uh, when teaching my classical conversations class last year, I nonchalantly slipped in the fact. Alexander the Great shares his middle name with Smokey the Bear. Yeah. That's a mom joke now. She's she's turned it into a mom joke. I, I love it, though. Okay. I love it. Only one of the kids caught on, but he explained the joke to the rest, who all promptly laughed along, whether they understood or not. You were credited, of course. So she's saying, this is that's your kind of humor. Yeah, right? so the royalty checks in the mail, right? Yes. I told them I was passing on what I had learned from a much beloved Latin professor. Oh, that's really kind. Want to pick it up from there? Yes, I will. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> if I can stop my blushing. She says, before having children, I was a firefighter in Loudoun County, which is in Northern Virginia. This is interesting, isn't it? She's a firefighter. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, thus the Smokey the Bear, right? Yep. And I designed the shirts for my fire school class. Each class does their own. It included a Latin phrase because who doesn't love a Latin phrase to add a little gravitas to your hoodie? Exactly. But I'm ching. I say facetiously. I listened to the episode on state mottos where you guys totally mocked people who do that. Did we do that? Well, I think we mocked people who do, who do it poorly. Yeah. Right. That's all it was. No, and Carrie didn't do it poorly. No, 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 no. Uh, the motto was nectamere nectamide, which means not rashly nor with fear. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Very good. She says, I didn't make it up. Don't remember where I came across it. It seemed fitting for a fighter, fire, a firefighter to be neither reckless nor fearful. That's, that's, that's perfect. It's great. Nothing to mock there. Yeah, I'd buy a hoodie with that on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You want to uh, go along with yes. the rest there? Yeah, let's finish this. With regard to my current location, my family and I left, uh, finally left uh, Virginia this past September and moved to the beach. Nice. Yes. We are living just north of Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. That's a, that's a lovely part of the You've country. You've been there? I have. Okay. I love it. Um, it's a fantastic place to live. Right. Uh, if I can just, just cut in here. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, so just to finish up, because I want to skip over this part here. But mm-hmm. She says that today was a balmy 70 degrees and sunny. And she says, as for the shout out, sure, 
Who doesn't love to be publicly mocked by a former professor? Oh, did we mock her? I don't think so. I don't so. think so. Yeah, no. she, she's, assu- she's assuming too much. A, well, well, I think she's just a little bit cautious. Because right. she knows what a big meanie you are, Winkle. I know, exactly. You right. are so I th- cruel I think I went. Podcast. I think I went fairly uh, easy on You went Carrie. light on her, right? Yeah. I'm the cuddly one. Right. Oh, man. Th- so, so, thanks. Th- thanks, Carrie. Really appreciate you listening. Um, and I'm very envious of the 70 degree weather right yeah. now as it's freezing up here. <laughs> yeah, it really yeah. is. Yeah. So Jeff, we're going to get into this now. Let's do it. So, um, how about I jump to the opening quote? Here? I'd love that. All right. Yep. So this comes from an article by one Peter G. Lennox, uh, from an article entitled Virgil's night episode reexamined and hmm. he had nine and then the, the relevant uh, line numbers. And he's, uh, this is an article which is trying to, uh, um, Pick apart, analyze this this tragedy of Nisus and Euryalus. So this is from uh, the journal Hermes, mm-hmm. uh, 1977. Yes. So um, the section that I'm about to read, he's just walked through a number of other scholars' interpretations of, of this episode. Okay. And now he's coming around to like what he's going to argue. So he says, I shall argue in what follows that such conceptions of the, under, of the undertaking and of Nisus' part in it are not supported by a careful consideration of the text. So he's responding to these previous um, uh, takes. Okay. Nisus and Euryalus are taking their turn at watch upon the wall of the Trojan camp. After eight verses in which the poet introduces these two characters who have already appeared as contestants in the foot race in Aeneid 5, which we talked about, yes. Nisus suddenly speaks, beginning with a final question to which his train of thought has led. He, write, he, he says, of course, in Latin, mm-hmm. um, Dine hunc ado, uh, adora mentibus adunt, Euryali an sua quique dios fit dira cupido. Right. So he's, he's kind of musing about where do these... Where do these thoughts, where do these right. desires come from? Do the gods yep. give our minds this kind of burning, O Euryalus, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, he's, or is, uh, is kind of, um, is it dire, uh, desire itself become yes. a god to us? Yes, right? to each person. Yes. Right? So if you really like something, right, say you really like a chicken sandwich. Yeah. You know, the age old, is it Popeye's or is it Chick-fil-A that makes the better chicken sandwich? Where do you fall on that? Um, at Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A at this point. Okay. Primarily because I think the odds of a sponsorship are a little bit higher <laughs> yeah. than with Popeye's. Okay. But Popeye's makes a mean sandwich too. Sure. So the sua cupido, mm-hmm. right? Uh, each person's desire uh, does, and it's a dear the cupido, mm-hmm. right? It's a, a dangerous desire. There you go. Like if you eat five sandwiches, that's going to be pretty dear, right? Right, right, right. Uh, becomes to him a god. Mm-hmm. Is that how it works? Yes. Um, and so Lennox continues to say, so to some commentators and critics, this is the key question to an issue which was prominent in the poet's thoughts throughout this episode, and indeed throughout the poem as a whole. Is man able to act as an agent in his own right, free from divine intervention? There is no direct influence upon the events which follow, comparable to the divine assistance re- rendered by Athena to Diomedes and Odysseus in the Dolinea, which is the, the Iliad yes. model for this scene, right? And so it is concluded that Nisa's dira copito, his dangerous desire, does, in fact, become to him a deus. Okay. So um, it's this is a, a Virgil kind of rearranging or kind of considering his the theological world, where mm-hmm. in, in the Iliad, it's Athena... She represents the god. She pushes, you know, uh, Odysseus and Diomedes along on their night raid. On their right? night this raid, this is in the Iliad. Yep. And as they're on their way into Troy, mm-hmm. right, where they they um, carry out devastation, is is it on their way in or on their way back where they uh, encounter Dolan? I think it's on their way back. On their way back, they encounter this hapless Trojan named mm-hmm. Dolan, and they kill him. They kill him. Right. Yeah. And it's an act of quite sudden brutality. Yes. Right. And that's one of the reasons that um, many later uh, scholars and readers thought. It doesn't quite square 
with the Odysseus and the Diomedes mm. we see elsewhere. And it's, so they're they're acting uh, in some ways very unheroic. If really, we, if we measure kind of heroism against what mm. what Athena represents, I don't know. Uh, we don't probably have time to get into it too far, but you don't like it though. <laughs> well, Di- Diomedes is certainly heroic and has a different kind of a character. He's one of the most admirable in the whole epic. But I wouldn't put this past Odysseus at all. Yeah. This seems very much like him in some ways. Remember how he treated Thersites? Yes. In book two? Right. Uh, Doesn't be- kill him. He just beats him on the head, though. Beats him. I know, but mocks and ridicules him. There's a there's a savagery about um, what Odysseus does there. Right. Also, uh, the way he treats Ajax in after the war, mm-hmm. right, in the contest over Achilles' armor. Right. There's a, there's a cruelty in uh, Odysseus' behavior that... I don't think is ever eclipsed. No, I think you're right there. And then, and then of course, also the uh, the tradition that Odysseus throws the infant Astyanax off the walls. Of That's Troy, correct. Right? So, and I think this that behavior of Odysseus certainly squares with um, the Odysseus. Like we see, even the Odysseus we see in the Philoctetes, right? Mm-hmm. He, you know, using people for his own ends. That's the Sophocles play. The Sophocles play, yep. right? Um, but I think so. Most people read this, of course, the Odysseus that we see in the Odyssey, right? Which has its own has its own problems, but much less. He's domesticated. He's domesticated. Exactly. That's the perfect way to put mm-hmm. it. Right. So, um, yeah. So we'll, we'll consider this. Okay. So you know. So how is Virgil responding to this to this episode, and what is the kind of the the theological world that is he standing behind it? You know, where where are the gods? Right. Yeah. So what do you take away here from Lennox then on the question of do the gods create this uh, burning in our minds, or um, does one's own desire become a god to each? What What is Lennox's uh, takeaway? Well, Lennox goes. Uh, he goes on to say uh, something along the lines that um, so it, Diomedes and Odysseus they survive, right? They kill yes. Dolan and they return to the Greek camp, right? And so they don't pay for their crimes right. to any degree. Nisus and Euryalus. Uh, spoiler alert! Right, they don't make it. No, right, and so Virgil adds this addendum: is that they they do these similar kind of horrible, uh, brutal kinds of things, and um, whatever God led them to do it, right, uh, they are punished for it. Interesting. Yep. The way I've always read the Nisus Euryalus story, and I could be wrong about this. I'm I'm willing to be corrected. I know that's rare in the course of this episode. Is that it's not the killing of the Rutulians that is the crime because. It's it's an enemy situation. It's it's a battlefield of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the fact that they go too far, right? They don't have moderation, even in their warfare. Right? They they get uh, overwhelmed by a kind of bloodlust. Yes, and no, that's what's is their undoing. Right? No, I, I would I would totally agree with that. I would I would even I would even kind of a telescope even further back. Okay. So um, in the Iliad, I mean the, the, these kinds of the the killing of that Nisus and Euryalus do and that. Odysseus and Diomedes do also remind me of what Achilles does on the battlefield, mm. where you know where he's gathering up these young Trojan boys and sacrifices and slaughters them. Yeah, and I don't think that Homer wants to see. Oh well, that's just what heroic warriors do. I think we're supposed mm. to see a madness in that. That's the the, the you know the, the the rage, the main end of uh, of Achilles. Right. And so um, I think in the Iliad that that wonderful scene between Glaucus and Sarpedon. That, that very almost absurdly weird scene where they in- introduce each other on the battlefield. Isn't that isn't that uh, Glaucus and Diomedes? No, it's uh, Glaucus and Diomedes. Sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. You're, you're right. I think it's book six. Yes, and so they meet on the battlefield, Trojan versus Greek, right? And they kind of they exchange stories. It's a picnic, right? And then so they they discover that you know their ancestors had been guest friends, correct? And so they say we can't fight, and so they no. exchange gifts and they move on. And so I think in that Homer gives us a model of. Of you know how a hero should approach the battlefield. There's no heroism in 
killing someone who's below your station. You right. want to try to tease them out and kind of figure out, okay, what level are you on? And therefore, should we fight? So to kill somebody in their sleep is is the antithesis. Yeah. Um, there's there's no, there's I mean, how could there be any kind of justification for that? Right. It, we've talked about this before, just to go pop culture on you a little bit. You know, that's my thing. Yeah. <clears throat> is uh, the Batman movies with their brutality, right? Yes. It, it's never a fair fight anymore, mm. right? It's the... the the, the hero is so um, much stronger and more capable that in the vengeance he takes on the, you know, the lower characters, it seems too uneven to be, ah, yeah. to be pleasing. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's, there's something um, inherently queasy about a, a fight that's not fair. Right. Yeah. So unfair. Yeah. But we, we're, we are getting way ahead of ourselves because there's this other scene that precedes okay. this right. with, with, uh, with, with Turnus and as they approach the camp and this weird thing that happens with the boats. So we got to cover that. Okay. Um, so Dave, would you start us off by reading some Latin? I would love the to. The very beginning of book nine. Yeah. So this is book nine lines one through seven. Adque adiver sa penatus dum parte geruntur, irdrem de kailomi sit Saturnia uno. Auda cad turnum lucotum forte parentis, pilumni turnus sucrata wallace debat, adquem sic roseo talmantias ora locutest, turnec quod optantidi vum permitere nemo, aude erdret well wenda, di ace and at tulit ultro. Very nicely done. Thank you. I got tripped up there in line seven with the well wenda. Right. You, you pulled it back together. Oof, yeah. Yeah. All right, now I'm. Uh, I rarely do I, I kind of call attention to this because he, because I'm a big fan of Mr. Lombardo. Yeah, but his translation of this first line, I thought was a. Uh, I, I I really want to know what you think of it. Okay, so, all right. Um, he translates this first line: "Adque ea de versapenitus dum parte geruntur," as while Aeneas was admiring his shield. So okay. book book eight remember ends with him getting this new armor. Yeah. Right. Um, and how would you do? Just give me a literal translation of that very first line. Okay. There. And while um, these different things were taking place, you know, in their... I'm struggling here with a penitus. Yes. Yeah. Penitus means completely, deeply. Yes. So the idea is, ea uh, de So while these different things uh, are taking place in their different spheres... Yeah. It's kind of... It's deliberately vague. Yes. So it's kind of a summary statement, and I'd like to compare it to the things that uh, Homer says at the beginning and the end of various books in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Typically the book ends with, and all the heroes, you know, went down to sleep as, yeah. you know, the night descended on the camp. Right. It's a formula. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next book begins as Rosie Finger Dawn stretched her, you know, her exactly. fingers, her hand over the sky. Yeah. Then all the heroes woke up and it's formulaic. So I think this is kind of a bit of a formulaic line as well. So wouldn't a better translation be something along the And while this was all going on... Something like that. Yeah. So I think what Lombardo has done is he has imported the meaning from the end of Book 8. Yeah. Because that's what he was doing. Aeneas was admiring his shield. But I think... Um, I think it's a little too free. That I, was my that was I think my it's sense. A little too free. Okay. Okay. But I have a lot of sympathy for him because it is a it is a difficult line. Right. It's so generic. You can you can almost make it whatever you want it yes, to be. Yes, it's so, incredibly flexible. So that's what he does. So right? I, I agree with his general principle of interpret the meaning when you're translating. Don't try to represent the words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I, I think it's a little too free. Okay. All right. Good. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So um, I'll I'll translate. Uh, Dave, what you what you recited and okay. a little bit more. Uh, so while Aeneas was Aeneas was admiring his shield, or while all this stuff was going on, Juno sent Iris down from heaven to bold Turnus, who was sitting in the sacred grove of his sire uh, Pilumnus. 
and Thalmas's daughter with pale rose lips. Turnus, what no what no god dared promise you time in its in its turning has brought unasked. Aeneas has left his town and his fleet to visit Evander's Palatine realm. Not only that, he has gone deep into Etruria to recruit the country folk, all the way to Lydian Cortona. What are you waiting for? Now is the hour to call for your chariot. Quit stalling and take their camp by surprise. Okay. So Turnus learns for the first time, as we as we heard in Book Eight, Aeneas has gone up the river to visit Evander. That's right. He's in the kind of the area, of kind of central Rome, yep. where, it w- where it will be. He's getting the uh, the backstory on Hercules, and he's meeting Pallas, the son of King Evander. He's forming his alliances. Yes. He's out of the picture temporarily. Yes, exactly right. And so Thomas's daughter, she's kind of calling to his attention to two things. Is one, uh, he's away from their camp. Like their, their leader's gone. This is a good time to, to attack. But two, he's already making, he's making local allies. Yes. So you better nip this in the bud. That's correct. Yeah. So just to keep all the audience up to speed here, Thomas's daughter is another name for Iris. And Iris is the rainbow goddess, mm-hmm. right, who is the messenger of Juno. Uh, in the same way that Hermes or Mercury is the messenger of Jupiter. Right. So behind this then is Juno. Juno sends Iris. Iris tells Turnus, get up and get get going and get here. get moving, yes. Call for your chariot. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, summon a lift. You ever use lift? Lift? Oh, no. It's I, misspelled. There's a Y in there. Oh, it's, it's, why, it's, like a, it's like an Uber. Yeah, it's well, a, I, no. think, I think uh, lift says the Uber's like a lift. Yeah, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Right. So I think one of the interesting tensions that that starts here and that we see throughout is um, if we play this game of, you know, who's who's the corollary in the Iliad? Yeah. So it, this is often taken. This is Aeneas's Achillean half. Right. right. So this is where he stops being Odysseus and it becomes Achilles. But Turnus's character, I think, is really quite complex. Yes. Because uh, at one level... He's playing the Hector character. He's the great warrior of the hometown peoples. He's defending his home from this invader. Yes. Right? But he also has these these kind of these rage-like Achilles aspects to him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, don't, I think it's, it's sometimes just saying, well, you know, Turnus is our Hector and Aeneas is our Achilles. That misses a lot of kind of the complexity that's going on. It, it, right. Well, because Aeneas is also Paris. Yeah. He's about to steal someone's... Exactly. Not someone's wife, but someone's betrothed. Betrothed, yeah. And Turnus has no, you know, no wife and child for whom to fight. Yes. Unlike Hector. Right. So he's not a family man. And so gone is some of the sympathetic aspects that Hector enjoys yeah. in the Iliad. Right. But I agree. There, there are no simple ways to characterize these heroes. Yeah. They're complex. Right. And in, in the lines, you know, speaking of kind of where, you know, where to play sympathies, in the lines that follow this passage, um, Turnus, he doesn't just kind of call up the troops and, and head on over there. He makes all the mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, expected prayers and sacrifices. And so that struck me as I was reading this is he's a lot like Aeneas in that way, right? Yeah. He's very religiously correct. Mm-hmm. He gets all those pieces in, in place before he kind of, he, he charges the camp. And so um, that makes it more difficult. Uh, Virgil makes it more difficult for just him. Oh, he's the villain. Right. He's a lot like the man he's trying to, to, to uh, chase out. Finally, a sympathetic villain, right? Yeah, there, there you go. Right. right. So the plan works. Juno dispatches Iris, who goes down to meet Turnus, mm-hmm. urge him into battle, yes. bring him up to speed. And uh, as we said, Turnus is religiously correct, right? He's got the same level of piety as Aeneas. He's it not seems, a, yep. He, he's not a cartoon character. Right. And what steps does Turnus take next? Okay, so then finally gets all the, the, you know, the due the ritual out of the way. Okay. He leads his army up to the Trojan fort, um, but it's kind of a surprise that they're all kind of, they're all holed up in there. They're not coming out ready to fight. Hmm. And we learn that um, Aeneas has ordered his men uh, to do exactly that. Wait till he gets back. Stand down. Right. So at this point in the story, so Aeneas is still off with Evander. Mm -hmm. And so he said, don't make a move 
until I get back. And so Turnus is now outside, you know, laying siege to the fort and uh, thinking about how he... Skulking, you yep. might say, doing some skulking around the walls. Yeah, lots of skulking. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, how, how might he kind of you know, get the, the Trojans to kind of come out of the, of the building, right? And... Um, but then he sees that the ships along the shore they're mm. completely vulnerable, mm. and he decides that you know, well, let's uh, let's trap them here for good. Yeah. So let's grab some torches, men, go down to the beach and burn the ships. Right. Yeah. Right. So skulking around, he's like a big, strong guy who's just kind of skulking. Yeah. Would you say he's like a skulk Hogan? <laughs> Nicely done. Yes. Is that a dad joke? No, that's a total dad joke. I'm okay. sure, I hope Carrie appreciated. Uh, that I don't one. know. Right. So they go down by the the seashore. Mm-hmm. With torches, right, mm-hmm. and some lighters, yeah. and they're going to torch the ships. They're torch the ships, but see, how does that help? Because doesn't it trap them there? It traps the Trojans in there. Italy, though. Right. Well, then you, they, there's no way to escape. So he's, I mean, he's planning so he, on ki- in killing them all. He doesn't want to just drive them away. He wants to punish he them. He wants to punish them. He wants them gone. He doesn't want them to, to, you know, leave in these ships and then maybe come back later. I see. Right. Okay. And then we get this really uh, rare kind of break in his Virgil, kind of mm. steps into the into the narrative. Mm-hmm. And um, in Lombardo's translation, he says, What god, O muses, turned these flames away from the Trojans, who drove this conflagration from their ships? Tell the old tale as, as it has ever been told. So this is another invocation of the muse, mm-hmm. which occurs here in book nine. Yeah. The the muse hasn't been invoked uh, for some time now, has right? It, has it been, the muse been invoked since line one? Well, I hate to commit to something categorical without yep. having checked carefully in advance and proved to be wrong. Right. But I'm going to say she has not been invoked since... Um, one because I can't remember right it's it's whatever it is it's very very rare yes it is rare. and it it um I mean it, it jolted me as I was reading this is kind of just kind of takes you out of the out of the, the narrative yes and um I, I, giving Virgil the benefit of the doubt there has to be he's up to something here yes and so he seems to set this up but this is like a an old piece of of um you know, Roman folklore yes and uh, his, he assumes his audience knows it and it's a it's a set piece it's a favorite and now he's going to tell that story it's a flashing red light to the audience yeah it's a little bit different than apostrophe uh, which is the figure of speech where in the poet speaks to the audience mm-hmm. uh, but it is it's not unlike what Homer does in book two of the Iliad where prior to the catalog of ships there's a second invocation ah okay and that's often taken as some kind of a a reverent nod toward the muse and her powers of memory mm. because he's got to list now all of these details about, you know, catalog poetry. Right. Um, not something similar at work here. It seems like it's it's less a feat of memory than it is something that has a particular grandeur or significance. Yeah. And that's why he pauses. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, uh, and again, in these those four lines, um, he tells us, in some ways, what happens? It says they head for the ships with the torches, but they do not burn them. So, what happened to turn these the the torches away? Right. And so then we learn in this uh, in this story that we learned way back when Aeneas back in back in Troy uh, was building these ships. Um, the god uh, goddess Sibylle, uh, those are called Berecynthian mother of the gods, uh, interceded with Jupiter uh, uh, on behalf of the Trojans, and um, so she's presented the Berecynthia 
in the area of Troy. She's a local okay. local goddess. So who is Sibylle exactly? Well, she's kind of she's the Mater Magna, the great mother. Okay, right. And so in the Roman tradition, she's even in this this episode, she's presented as the, as the mother of Jupiter himself. Mm-hmm. And so she's um, uh, sits even behind the Olympian deities. Okay, and so she she's one of these goddesses of of of, of ecstasy and wildness. There was a temple of Sibylle on the Palatine Hill. Yes. Um, there was a very fervent um, and often bloody and violent cult of Sibylle in Rome itself. Highly controversial yeah. as well. All right. Yeah. It, it involved, it could involve self-mutilation. Right. Um, but it, it has kind of those elements of, a, of an initiatory mystery cult, mm-hmm. um, but central to, to kind of Roman identity and certainly around the time Virgil's writing. So here I can, it's kind of a hat tip to the, the culture around him, contemporary Rome. Okay. Mm-hmm. So within the city of Rome, there's the cult of the Phrygian mother, mm-hmm. Sibylle. And there are bloody rituals that may have involved self-mutilation. Yes. Was there a temple also? Yes, on the, up on the Palatine Hill. So it okay. had a, kind of a central place right. in, in, in Rome, and I think it was a core part of um, its kind of mythic identity. Yeah. So would you say Virgil's including it here in the story as an appeal to his contemporaries, or is it an etiology, an explanation of where did this come from, why is it important? I think it's certainly there. I mean, the, I mean, the language that he uses suggests that he kind of assumes that his audience will know it. Right. But I think he also wants, in some ways, he's you know he's telling a Homeric tale, but he also wants to make it distinctly Roman at the right. same time, and this is a great way to do it. Yeah. Excellent. So um, let me read. Uh, oh, you want to read a little bit of Lombardo's translation? I would translation? like to. If Please I may, do yeah. so. Tell this story. So here's the result then. And so the fates parsed out their time. And on the promised day, Turnus's outrage signaled the mother to repel the fire from her signal from her sacred ships. So the mother here is the Sibylline mother, yes. right? Yep. Who had given the the promise to Jupiter that these ships made in Troy would never be destroyed exactly. by flame. Exactly. Okay. Yep. First, an eerie flash of light blinded the eye, and then coming out of the east, an immense cloud. Circled by Ida's mystic dancers, rushed across the sky, and the voice that fell from the ocean of air sent shockwaves through the ranks of Trojans and Rutulians alike. Do not trouble, Teucrians, to take up arms in defense of my ships. Turnus will sooner burn up the sea than scorch my sacred pines. Go free now, go, goddesses of the deep. The mother commands it. The ships at once ripped their cables free of the banks, and dipping their beaks, dove like dolphins into the depths, and then each... A great wonder rose as a mermaid and swam in the waves. This wondrous metamorphosis of ships into into sea creatures. That's kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. Have you seen uh, Avatar 2? I have not. Have you seen Avatar 1? I did. Okay. Grudgingly. Okay. So, uh, a, a visual feast, but I thought a dead bore as a story. The first one? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That's what they're saying about the second one, too. Really? <laughs> but I'm, yes. I'm, uh, but it's kind of like that, right? It's got this magical... Yeah descriptive, um, otherworldly sort of feel to it, and they, the ships dive down and become mermaids. Yeah. They're living underwater. Yeah, it's it's re- it's really quite a, a beautiful um, visual to kind of imagine all that, all that going on. Um, could, could Kevin Costner be in this one too? Um, boy, he would drag this one down. Really? Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking of Waterworld. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did see, have you seen that movie? Yes, I, I have. Oh, man. I remember nothing about yeah, it. It's a stinker. Stinkeroo. <laughs> Right now, Ovid, I don't believe Ovid tells. I mean, this this tale. This seems like it'd be ready made for the metamorphoses, right? You'd think so. But I don't think he. I don't think that shows up in his in his poetry. Don't remember. Again, I don't. I don't want to commit to that. But I, right, this strikes me as kind the of the fans a, will be howling. The, right. Yep. So, um, the Rutulians seeing this, they're you know they're they're awed. Yes. They're kind of stunned by this. 
Um, but Turnus, uh, he decides to look on the bright side. He says, okay, we didn't burn the ships, but hey, they're gone. Mm. Right? They turned into sea creatures. They can't, mm-hmm. they can't ride those back to Troy or get right. out of here. Right. Um, so he's satisfied with yep, the outcome. Exactly. He says, now they have no way to escape. And wasn't yes. that the point to begin with? A flexible hero. Right. So he, he, he tries to um, you know, turn, turn the tide of, of opinion. And mm. he, he says to his, um, his men, he says, these portents were, portents were just for the Trojans. Um, and have nothing to do with us. Uh, it, this should not be. This is not meant to kind of scare us away and saying like you know, um, you know, if we pursue this, that the gods are going to punish us. No, right. that was a little thing for the Trojans, but we still have our job to do. That's right. So then night falls, mm-hmm. right, on the Rutulians, yes. and uh, they're camping outside the walls. Right. And speaking of camping, yes, it's time for the ads. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Racial Coffee with offices in Portland, Oregon. Mark Helwig has been producing two fine, fine coffee machines for the general public. These would be the Ratio 6 and the Ratio 8. Yes. Jeff, tell us a little bit about your morning coffee ritual. Um, I like to get the it all ready to go the night before. Yes. I've got my metal cone right. in my hand-blown carafe. Yes. It, it's it's waiting to go. I don't add the coffee. I don't want to sit in there stale all night. No, no. But um, I add the, the fresh grounds in the morning. I hit that button, and you just sit back, and, and uh, in, in three minutes, it's ready. It goes through the three stages of the bloom, mm-hmm. the off-gassing of all the terrible flavors. Uh, that's where the brackish tang dissipates. Exactly. Friends don't let friends drink brackish tang. No, they do not. And then in the, the brew stage, that's where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. And then ready, and you're good to go. And you're ready to go. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I, I take out the cone, I put in the little the little um, you know, secure top piece. That's right. And it's ready to pour. It, the whole thing is just a it's a, a beautiful aesthetic experience. It's, it's delightful. It is. And the machine is gorgeous. It is. You have the eight now. You used to have the six, mm-hmm. which is also a fine machine. You had that one in the stainless steel. I had the stainless steel. Yep. And uh, for the eight, what's, I, I also what's your ha- color I, I also have the stainless steel, oh, but, you do. but with the glass carafe. The yes. glass carafe, right. Yep. So mine is kind of an oyster color, as mm-hmm. the audience knows, with uh, walnut, real walnut accents. It's, it's a work of art. So if you take your coffee seriously, you love that morning ritual um, as much as Dave and I do, do yourself a favor. Go to ratiocoffee.com. Uh, click on the, the the six or the eight or both if you feel, feel so moved um, and do and get yourself one of these wonderful machines. You can type in the coupon code ANCOK5. ANCOK5. Mm-hmm. Don't know what the K stands for. No, but uh, you type that in and what, what does that get them, Dave? You're going to get 15% off. It comes in a, a lovely package. You know, it's not a cheap coffee machine, but nope. why would you buy a cheap coffee machine? Exactly. You want something that's going to last. This yep. will become an heirloom. You it, can leave it to your grandkids. It's true. Yep. You will not regret it. This episode of Odd Nauseam also brought to you by Hackett Publishing for, I think it's 51 years 51. Now. Yep. Uh, they have this publisher with their offices in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. They have been producing, publishing um, erudite uh, wonderful, accessible, digestible translations of the classics and many other uh, aspects of academia for a very long time. I love their works. I use them in my classes. I have them on my shelves at home. Um, I can't say enough about these guys. Yeah, uh, one of my close friends is taking a class in political science and they're reading Plato. And so I said, here, use my copy of The Republic, published by Hackett, translated by CDC Reeve. has mm-hmm. an attractive cover. It's inexpensive, highly accurate you can't go wrong. Yeah, and if you like uh, Mr. Lombardo's translations, and you've been listening to the Aeneid episodes, um, you can pick that up at uh, at Hackett as well. Um, his translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey too, um, and the Aeneid, as you said, and Ovid's Metamorphoses. Yep, 
Why don't you even pick up the translation that Lombardo has done of the Aeneid and read it in advance of our episodes? And then you can sit back and say, these guys got this totally wrong. Exactly. You can chortle and laugh and That's mock. That's correct. That's I right. should be doing my own podcast. Yes. Those two knuckleheads. What do they know about the Aeneid? Exactly. So, yeah, do you, you can do a little bit of advanced homework. That's right. Um, and I think uh, more charitably, you'd appreciate these episodes that much more. Right. Um, More charitable to whom? To to, to uh, us. To us. Exactly. <laughs> right. But they want to get the discount, Jeff. They Tell do. them about the discount. So uh, go to hacketpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com. Find the books you want. Scroll through their catalog. It's great stuff. Um, type in the coupon code AN2023. That's ad nauseum AN with the current year. And that will get you 20% off and free shipping. Check it out. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it now, we're ready for the night sortie. Yes. So this is what the the scene that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Nisus and Euryalus decide they're going to make this. Uh, um, it's not to invade the camp to kill the Trojans. They're going to go in and get Aeneas. Right. So that's I think that's also something that um, that separates us some, uh, somewhat from um, the Dolanea and the Iliad. Right. Now, Aeneas is not in the camp of the Rutulians. No. They have to go through the camp through of it. the Rutulians, who are surrounding the fort, yes. and go on to find Aeneas. Right. And so the um, so they don't go necessarily with the intent to kill and destroy. It's really to sneak through, but the killing and the destroying um, uh, happens anyway. Right. So... Um, this is Virgil's Dolinea, as that um, that book ten of the Iliad is, or the Iliad is often called. Call, called that because it's named after the character Dolan. Yes. So it's his moment of glory. Right. His fifteen minutes of epic fame. Exactly. Which is not all that glorious because he gets butchered and dismembered. No, it's right? bad. <laughs> right. Um, but it's this episode that uh, you know, in the Iliad, and I think also here, at least to some degree, raises questions of is this is this proper is this heroic behavior. Um, is is this something that the um, the gods would would bless? Right. Um, and so in the Iliad, Ane- uh, Athena, she's she's pushing Diomedes and, and Odysseus to do this. And as we saw in our opening quote from from um, the article, Lennox, uh, the gods really aren't involved here. And no. Euryalus actually muses, is you know what 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 drives us to do these kinds of things? And, right. And does kind of that dangerous. Nisus who's musing. Oh, as, Nisus, as, he, as he speaks to Euryalus. There you go. Exactly. So Nisus says, is it? Is it, um, do the gods put this in us, or is it just that those dark desires become a god to us? Yes, that's, that's a, a really interesting question, it isn't is. it? It is, right? So, um, and, and, and so how does that justify or condemn the actions that follow? Right. And another question that you could raise here is, what are Virgil's rules of war? Right. What, what goes in a Virgilian understanding of warfare? Is the, the killing of innocence, the killing of women and children, only combatants or maybe non-combatant males, can they be killed as well? Right. Uh, must one be honest in war or is it okay to lie to an enemy? Mm-hmm. All of these things are in play. And are they different from Homeric notions of arete or excellence? Exactly. And, and one of the interesting wrinkles here is that um, we've... Really, up until this book, you know, we've had the Trojans, well, at least up until book seven or eight, the Trojans, they are victims, right? right. They've been kind of chased out of their home. They're wandering, they're looking for a new home, and in finding the new home, oh, now now this shoe's on the other foot. Now they're the invaders. Right. And, right. So um, how do we feel about them now as, you know, doing what the Greeks did to them? Right. And it, it changes everything. So Nisus and Euryalus reappear here mm-hmm. after quite a long hiatus. Yes, we saw them in book five. Okay, and so, that was the funeral games. Right, and so they participate in this in this foot race, and they, they are presented as this inseparable pair. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And there is this incredible foreshadowing, maybe, where as the race goes along, one of them slips in the 
the mire and the mess oh, that's right. of an offering. Mm-hmm. And he's about to lose, but then his friend trips the other competitors. Uh, so, and then he trips the other competitors so his friend can sail through to the victory. Right, exactly. Right. So, are you seeing uh, some uh, foreshadowing in that scene oh, of, yes. of this? Okay. Oh, yeah. All right, because. All right. As we said at the time, if you fall down in the the remnants of an animal sacrifice with the the dung and the the carcass and the discarded material, yeah, that's not good. It is not good. That doesn't, <laughs> no doesn't matter how you look at well. it, it's not good, right? No, right. So um, now we so we see the um, the penny drop here, right? Just the dry cleaning bill would be enormous. <laughs> exactly. So Nisus and Eurialis, um, they have this discussion, um, you know, and uh, Nisus is kind of musing about, you know, where does this desire come from, right? Um, and, but they decide to sneak out together uh, to get word to Aeneas about what's been happening. And so before going, they go to Ulysses, uh, Aeneas' son, and to the council to let them know what they're thinking and to get their, their blessing. Mm. And this, and speaking of kind of, you know, dire foreshadowing, right. um, Virgil really draws this out as they, as they uh, the council gives their blessing, you know, as they say, go for it. But there's these, these hugs and, you know, and uh, embraces and tears and, and mm. long goodbyes and uh, words about, what should I do if we never see you again? Right. It's clear that this is not going to go well. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, let's let's get into the, the episode itself. So um, there at line 314, can you read a little bit of Latin for us, Dave? Yes, I'd love to. So, Egresi superant fasas nactisque per umbram, castra nemi capetunt multis tamenante futuri, exidio passim sam no winoque per herbam, corpora fusa vident ardrectos litera curus, inter lora rotasque viros simul arma yaceira, winasemuo prior hertakides sic ora locutus. Nice. Thank you. And this means, what does uh, Lombardo he says, say? How does he translate it? He says, the pair leave and soon find them in the enemy camp. They leave, cross the trenches, and make their way through night's shadows to the enemy camp, where soon they will be the death of many. Everywhere they look, they see drunken men asleep in the grass, chariots tilted upright, soldiers sprawled among wheels and reins, weapons and wine jars lying about. The son of Hyrtacus was first to speak. This is it, Euryalus. Cover our rear and keep your eyes open. I'll lead and I'll make a road of blood you can't miss. Mm. Right, so now the question that I ask uh, as I read this is, uh, I'll be, uh, so he, you're, uh, Nisus is saying, I'm going to go kill me some Rutulians. Yeah, right? he's the son of Hurtakis. Right. So my question is, is that necessary? Hmm. If they're all asleep and drunk, couldn't you do a little bit of tiptoeing and find right. your way to, to Aeneas? Maybe you've been watching too many cartoons. With the, with the tiptoeing? With the tiptoeing? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. The question that first occurred to me, mm-hmm. I mean, your question's a good one, we'll get to it too, but why are they all drunk? Why are the Rutulians all drunk? That is a good question. It's an undisciplined camp? Right. Th- this is my answer to that. I think what, what, what he, Virgil wants us to think of are the, is, are the traditions about the Trojan horse. That when the, the Trojans bring in the Trojan horse, they think the war's over and it's party time and they're drunken and asleep when Odysseus's men pop out of the horse. Oh, I see. Is that, so similarly, but kind of in reverse, yes. Turnus and the Rutulians think we've trapped them. The war's at an end. Yeah. And so they have this feeling of invulnerability. Exactly. Or they've they let their guard down. Yes. Or they see no, they see no um, reason to kind of to rush this ordeal. And so they're, they're drinking and drinking it up. And right. Uh, they even have their the, the the chariots are tilted upright. They're kind of mm. up on up on blocks. Right. Right. So we were talking on the way over here. I'm reading this biography of U.S. Grant. Yeah. By Ron Chernow. Right. It's a really magisterial work. I've gotten to just the point. I think it's 1876, right near maybe it's 75. The end of, of Grant's second term, and a Michigander, uh, Major General George Armstrong Custer. That's right. Michigan's right? own it. Forgot that's about correct. That. Yeah. He leads a column off to the west to put down the Sioux Rebellion, as mm-hmm. as it was called. Uh, but arrogant, right? Arrogant and 
uh, goes to his own doom uh, from an excess of valor, is how it was described at the time. People today would describe it differently because, uh, and Cherno says, you know, this was a genocidal impulse, basically. Mm. But uh, Custer was known during the Civil War as a man of great heroism and courage mm-hmm. uh, when fighting Confederates. But he was supposed to wait for the other two generals uh, to join with him so that they had a, you know, a larger force against the Sioux who were now in eastern Montana at Little Bighorn, previously in the Dakotas. But Custer just forges right ahead with a kind of uh, total disregard for what was going to happen. So all 260 of his men uh, were killed by... And, and Custer himself too, right there on the hill. That's correct. There, yeah. And his body was uh, stripped naked and disfigured. It, hmm. was, it was Homeric, honestly. Right. Uh, the, the justice and the devastation, because Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse there, you know, outsmarted him. And outnumbered him something like ten to one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm I'm reminded of that as reading the story of Nisus and Urialis. Is it is it gallantry? Is it bravery on their part? Is it foolishness? Bloodlust? What's right. going on? Yeah, I mean, I think a Greek would look this, look at this as a textbook case of hubris meets nemesis. Right? Exactly. Right. Can you define those terms? So hubris, um, a, a an, an overstepping of, of bounds. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think you could you could define hubris. In many, many different ways. Right. I always like to use the example of, of Icarus. Right? Yes. So his dad tells him, don't fly too high, but also don't fly too low. Right. Show and some so, moderation. So exactly. So not showing moderation is hubris. Right. And when you show hubris, that invites nemesis and the catastrophe. And nemesis is a goddess whose uh, primary job is to punish hubris. Exactly. So I asked for the definition of terms because I know it's remotely possible some members of the audience have not listened to all 115 episodes. I doubt that, but... Well, I, I mean, I get, it's possible. Right, right. We've yeah. talked about hubris and nemesis a lot. <laughs> yes. Probably enough to make nemesis angry. Right. Uh, but those those are the terms. That's what they mean. Exactly. So um, I take this in this scene uh, that this slaughter is is unnecessary. Okay, because they're drunk. Because Right. There's no, and because they can get through the camp and to their goal without killing anyone. Exactly. They didn't set out to do this, but... Nisus, he's overcome by this Dira Cupido, maybe right. in this moment, and he's gonna he's gonna get some uh, he's gonna get, uh, take some people out. Yeah. Right. Now, when King David is um, on the run after he has been anointed, yeah. but before he has risen to the throne, and Saul is hunting him, yeah. Remember, a deep sleep falls on uh, Saul's camp, and uh, one of uh, David's men goes right up and has the opportunity to kill Saul, and David tells him not to, right, and even is upset. That some of Saul's cloak has been brought back because, you know, the Lord's anointed uh, has been threatened or yeah. harmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of the external features of the two stories are really similar. Yeah, the, I like the that. Deep sleep on the camp. Of course, the the moral point and the outcome are quite different. Right, right, right. Now I know in in um, in some of our comparisons, not I mean along these lines, and you and I have have different um, uh, different views on things. Like we've talked like like, like the Cyclops episode. Um, oh I, yeah, I've demonstrated some 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 moderate sympathy for the the Cyclops. And you, you always seem to kind of come down to the fact that what we perceive in these stories as kind of immoderately violent is, um, from an ancient point of view, uh, acceptable if not necessary. In, so, in two cases. Okay. In the case of someone who is subhuman, mm-hmm. and Polyphemus, the Cyclops, is presented as that, yep. or maybe the Harpies, or Medusa, right? Mm-hmm. These are subhuman. They're not human beings. Yes. They're other. Uh, and then in the case also where there's justice to be meted out. Okay. So when Odysseus kills the suitors, I don't necessarily like the gore, but I don't think it would have bothered an ancient audience because it's retributive justice. Yeah. They had a different concept. Now, the the Rutulians, I don't know if they fall into either of those categories. Right. 
No, I, I, I think so too. Okay, so I think we're, we're on the same page yes, here too. Because they're human, they're not like the Cyclops. Right. And they haven't done anything particularly wrong to Nisus and Urialis. Exactly. That's the, another thing that bothers me too is that this is an episode that takes place really before the wars even started. Correct. Right? So there's not like a, a, a history where there'd be a, you know, a boiling them up of hatreds, right. right? And so that's what it kind of comes out of nowhere. The contrast then at the very end of the epic when Aeneas dispatches Turnus, Aeneas is instituting a retributive justice on Turnus for the death of Pallas. There we go. Right. Um, nothing similar happening here in the story of Nisus and Euryalus. Exactly. So and I think those are really um, good distinctions to, to tease out. I often find when I teach, um, not this episode, but when I, I teach things like the Iliad or the Odyssey, I often find that my students come to the uh, come with it with kind of the, the assumption that this is this is ancient, this is violent, right, right. And, right? and so we just keep to have to kind of accept all of this is just because that's the way the world was. Yeah. So I could see some of my students reading this episode and say, well, that's just, that's just the way it was. But no, it's, it's not. No, it's not. Because people, in, in my estimation, are the same the world over and throughout time. And the other issue is I don't think that most of the time our moral imagination is broad enough. Mm. Spend a little time reading the news, you know, yeah. and you'll find... <laughs> There is so much cruelty and violence that still takes place. Yeah. And for a person not to be outraged by that uh, is a failure of morality, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think it's good to say, well, that's just how the world was then. Right. You know, Virgil has a conscience and it may even be, um, it, it seems to me much more developed than that of most people I know. Yeah, especially when you come to see that uh, Nisus and Euryalus don't return to the camp, or they don't make it to Arcadia, right. right? They pay for this. They do. In a way that Diomedes and Odysseus in the Iliad uh, do not. Correct. And so that's why I think... That's so you say that's the distinction. That's, a, I think, a very uh, a very important distinction. Um, and that's what I think what I mean by maybe in Virgil adding this coda to the story, um, we see him maybe completing the Iliadic story. Kind of hmm. saying, well, this is, you know, if... If um if if Homer had done it correctly, or maybe he's even answering the fact that well, it's it's not Homeric, but this is how right. it should be done, right? The difference though is Nisus and Euryalus are absolutely minor characters. Mm. Odysseus mm. and Diomedes are not. You can't kill off the main you character. Can't. <laughs> they're they're really central to much of the action, even later in the story. Right. And um, I'm not saying that Homer couldn't have done something different, but it's it's telling that. Virgil introduces two characters that I believe were previously unknown. Mm. Oh yeah, right, 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 right. No, that that's I mean that's a very good point, right? So if you if you off even one of those two uh, right. Odysseus and Diomedes, well then you're you're left holding a very um, empty bag. That's correct. Yeah. A lot of ramifications. Right. So they they make a slaughter of mm. the sleeping drunken men. Um, they steal a bunch of things. Uh, Euryalus notably steals uh, one of the captain's helmets off and um, puts it on his head. And then they sprint for the woods. Right. So killing killing men in their sleep when they're drunk. Yes. Have you seen this meme? Uh, I can't remember all of it maybe, but um, this is what we'll do. We'll cross a frozen river on Christmas Day and kill you in your sleep. We're <laughs> Americans. We've done it before. We'll do it again. This. It's a picture of Washington crossing the, the Delaware. Delaware. Right, right, right. It was, it was a surprise attack yeah, right? on yeah. the, the Hessian camp, I think. Uh, on Christmas morning, oh, was right? I didn't. That was on Christmas. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Everyone is shocked, right? <laughs> yeah. It's maybe a little bit reminiscent of Nisus and Euryalus. There you go. Although you know George Washington didn't end in disaster; it was a victory. One right. Of the, one of the first real victories for the American Revolution. Right. 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 
So um, they so they kill these they kill these men they um, they they strip some 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 uh, um, some prizes. Yes, they get a Rolex yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. Um, what's it like an um, iPhone 15? iPhone 15, Xbox. That's right. Right, and so they're running off with it, you know under their arms, running into the woods. Yes, <laughs> and that's what gives them away. Yes, this is such poetic justice. Right. So they they. Uh, uh, they not only are they you know they're I think they're you know they're over they're committing hubris by killing and despoiling. Mm-hmm. It also clearly takes them way too long because by the time they start running for it, the sun's coming up. Yes, right? <laughs> uh, this is one of the most gripping moments in the poem, I would say, in the, yeah. in the whole epic. They steal a bunch of stuff, and Urialis, what does he steal in particular? This helmet, right? Captain's helmet. Captain's helmet. Bronze. The the captain probably polished it off mm-hmm. right the night before and buffed it with wax before he polished off a bottle of. Jim Beam or something like that. Uzo, right. And passed out. And as Urialis is running across the field, what happens? The sun glints off the the polished bronze and gives them away. Yep. And then the chase begins. Yep. Um, Like that. So the irony of it is, you know, that that biblical expression, be sure your sin will find you out, right? mm. He grabs that helmet and the the greatest prize, but if he had had more self-control and restraint and just gone on to... Uh, his, you know, purported mission of finding Aeneas, mm-hmm. the sun wouldn't have glinted off the helmet, given given away his location, yeah, and he's a dead man. He's a dead man. It's all over. And then not only that, as they're running to the forest, they they um they're kind of tripping up in the thick undergrowth, so that's slowing them down. Just like uh, Book Five, right in the foot race, exactly the foreshadowing. There we go. Um, and then Urialis is grabbed. Uh, let me read a little bit of um of uh, Lombardo here. It says, Nisus got through in a blind rush and would have escaped the enemy in those regions later called Alban, at that time part of Latinus's pasture. When Nisus stopped and looked back, to no avail for his missing friend, poor Urialis, where did I leave you? How can I find you? Hmm. And I thought this, you know, we were talking, I think, briefly at the beginning of, uh, not maybe not comparisons of Virgil, or you, 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 um, you wondered if, if Ovid, Ovid was yes. doing, doing, outdoing Virgil by adding three more books in his, right, his poetry. Right. But I, I wonder if if Ovid is deliberately tagging Virgil here in his episode at the end of the Daedalus and Icarus, where um, so now Nisus is looking around. You know, you're, where are you? Where can I find you? Uh, it's almost the same thing where Daedalus, after Icarus plunges to the sea, turns around and says, you know, Icarus. You know, he said, Icarus. He said, where are you? Um, you know, where should I look for you? Right. Um, I wonder if if Ovid was kind of nodding, kind of winking at his. Oh, interesting. His, his, uh, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it just struck me as kind of it, when I read that passage of what Nisa says. It says, "Oh, that reminds me exactly of the end of the Daedalus episode." But yeah. Who, who knows? Interesting. Yep. Interesting. So Nisus runs after Euryalus mm-hmm. as Euryalus is being dragged away to his death by the other Rutulians. Yes. And it's the it's the close bond of friendship, right, that holds these two men together. Or perhaps on some readings more than friendship. Yes. But the text isn't clear, no. I would say, on that at all. No. Yeah. Uh, and then, shall I read some Lombardo here? Yeah, let's do it. Nisus spoke and put all of his weight into the throw. So he's going to throw a spear here to try to save his friend. The spear split the dark air, hit a warrior named Salmo in the back, and snapped. The splintered shaft punched through to his chest, and Salmo spun around, hemorrhaging warm blood in heaving gasps until he collapsed into cold death. The Rutulians looked around in every direction, breathing more sharply. Nisus balanced another spear over his shoulder. So he's, he's carrying all this all this loot and he's got two spears? The spears have straps. Okay. All right, it all works. Right, okay. It's like a water bottle all with right. a strap. I got you. All I right. got you. All right. Yeah, go on. And while they hesitated, it went hissing through both of Tagus's temples and warmed itself deep in his cloven brain. <laughs> 
I find this much more disturbing than a, you know, a visual CGI representation. Without a doubt, though, that that line in particular that got me. Touches my imagination. It warmed right? itself deep in his cloven brain. Hats yeah. off, hats off, uh, Mr. Lombardo. That's nice. It makes up for that that first line. Yeah, this is called uh, the figure of speech here. May I be a little pedantic? Please. Okay, this is the figure of speech called prolepsis. Okay. Anticipation. Mm. Right. The brain isn't cloven. Until the spear goes through it. Ah, yes. Then it's cloved yeah. or cleaved in half. <laughs> That's right. But by a kind of anticipation, you describe it as, you know, what's going to happen to it. Mm-hmm. Warmed itself deep in his cloven brain. Mm. Oof. Volcanes seethed with rage. He's the leader of the Rutulians. Yes. He's there. But he could not see who threw the spear or where to unleash his fury. All right. So it's falling apart for these two guys really quickly. Really fast. Yep. If only they had just walked through the camp. Just walked through. Or, yeah. or maybe stolen just one watch. L- left, take, left the iPhone. Take a pair of uh, Air Jordans, exactly. you know, just one pair. Some socks. That'd be okay. Yeah. Maybe some leftover vodka. But no, they have to engage in all of this wanton destruction. Yep. And it undoes them. It does. So Nisus, he desperately tries to save Urialis, um, and he, he, he claims, you know, oh, this whole thing was my idea, so, you know, turn your fury on me. He tried, you know, way too late to try to kind of sacrifice himself right. uh, for his friend, um, but Urialis is slaughtered uh, anyway by Vulcans. And we get this wonderful, uh, very tragic simile. This lovely epic simile. You're going to read that? Yeah, so in translation, as a purple flower cut by a plow droops in death, or as a poppy bows its weary head heavy with spring, uh, spring rain, hmm. so thus the... Uh, so that's the head of, of Euryalus. Mm. And this is also a direct tag, it seems, of, uh, of Homer as well, um, where we get uh, the, the death of one uh, Gorgithion, who was a, a minor son of Priam. Mm. And he's killed by one of Teucer's arrows in Book 8 of the Iliad. Mm. And um, here in Theodore Buckley's translation of, of the Iliad. Can I just ask, aren't yeah. all the sons of Priam minors? <laughs> Nicely done. That's a dad joke. Yeah, Sorry. Right. All right, sorry. Theodore Buckley's translation of the death of Gorgithian. Yes, and as a poppy which in the garden is weighed down with the with fruit and vernal showers droops its head to one side, so did his head incline aside, depressed by the helmet. Mm. So I, it kind of, um, as these similes often do, they take kind of a gentle image from nature, but apply it to something very dark, bloody, and violent. Yes, yeah, it's a great juxtaposition. It's wonderful poetry. Mm-hmm. So Gorgithian, yes. the son of Priam, is also young, beautiful. And innocent, which we can't really say of Urialis, he has the the residual innocence of youth, yes. I guess. But now he's graduated to you know bloody war, right? So there's a sense of just desserts here. Exactly. Maybe you know swayed by the elder Nisus, but nevertheless right. you know, guilty for what he's what he's done, or at least at, at very least you know guilt by association. And what happens next? So Nisus, he goes out in a, in, a, in a blaze of glory. He rages against uh, Vulcans. He kills Vulcans, but in the killing, he is mortally wounded himself. Um, and his last act uh, of his life is to throw himself on top of the body of Euryalus. Mm-hmm. In an act of affection or an act of protection or, or protection, something. Protection, yeah. A, a, a vein, uh, in vain, yeah, of course. Friendship. You know the very famous uh, two skeletons that were discovered in Pompeii recently? No. Um, well, it was within the last decade, I guess. Uh, two skeletons, and they're holding hands. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah. Yep. That's two male skeletons. Mm-hmm. And so there's speculation, but I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Uh, um, clearly, they were friends, right? And I got to tell you, no matter who I'm dying with, if it's a volcanic, you know, hippocast, I want to hold somebody's hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't care who, who it, it is. Exactly. Even right. if it's someone who's been, you know, my mortal enemy since childhood. <laughs> you got plenty of those. 
I suppose <laughs> I'm gonna say, hey, it's it's almost all over. Can you just squeeze my hand real quick? Yeah. So let's have a let's have an act of gentle friendship here. Right. So yes, this uh, yeah, an act of affection or or protection, um, connection uh, in Nisus's last act. So they're dead now, right? Mm, they're dead. So what's next? So I'm. It just makes me think about um, you know, what what is the message? What is Virgil trying to say here? Yeah. And so you know, is it an answer to the Dolaneas that um, by using these minor figures, he can tell a similar kind of story, but he can have them pay for their hubris? Yeah. In a way that, um, as you you rightly noted, uh, Odysseus and Diomedes, in terms of the narrative, simply could not be. Mm-hmm. Um, so is he is he correcting that to some degree? Is it does this bring us back to that you know our opening quote and the musings about you know. Uh, who puts this stuff in our heart? Um, you know, right. Can we blame the gods, or is it just our own our own dark desires that make us do that? And Become a god to us, and right. we're driven to it despite ourselves. Exactly. And so I think but because Virgil kind of begins the episode with that musing, I think he wants us to think about that. Because, right. Um, what led to this? Who's, right. who's, who's to blame for this? And so we don't have a god involved. There's no Athena there. Um, you know, Venus doesn't step in. Um, you know, Juno, we don't see Juno kind of, you know, sending down furies and the like to kind of, you know, rage, uh, uh, amongst the Rutulians. The gods right. are really noticeably absent from this episode, right? which makes it really interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I trivialize it just a minute? Please do. Okay. So maybe something people can relate to. If someone puts out a plate of cookies, right, or a bag of potato chips, and they're not even a cookie that you really like. And you know you don't like it because you've had it before. Yeah. And you have eater's remorse, right? Yeah. But for that split second, your will is divided. I want one of those cookies. Yes. So you go and eat it. And, you you know, there's two wills struggling with each other. And as soon as you've eaten it, you say... You immediately regret it. That was terrible. Why did I do that? Exactly. And I knew I wasn't going to like it. What is is it? Hope springs eternal. This time, you know, this whatever it is, crusty-o, will taste good. Yeah. Nah, so it's it's not like that. So no. I'm just trying to find some analog. No, yeah, I like that. We're not yeah. going to be trapped on the battlefield, probably walking through the Rutulian camp. But that <laughs> sense of what makes us do certain things exactly that a large part of us knows is not in our interest or something that we like. Right. Right. Yeah. Where does where does Nisus's bloodlust you know, come? Uh, where does it come from in that right. moment? We've right? only seen him as an athlete and yeah. a friend. Right. Right. And now he just turns into some. Raging monster. Raging monster. I don't know. Uh, but you're, with your example, I've had that. That usually happens with me with fig newtons. Fig newtons. You I don't hate, like the fig newtons. I hate them. But they don't the, like the gritty, grainy interior. <laughs> but if there's one sitting there and I'm, and I'm caught in one of these weak moments, I'm right. going to eat it. Yeah. And I'm going to hate myself for it. Right. Yeah. It sometimes happens with chips too, right? I oh mean, yeah. This is uh, the the podcast for classical gourmands, that's true. right? Right. You know, you eat four chips. That's pretty good. But 54 chips, you think, <laughs> now why did I do that? Exactly, right. I knew I didn't want to do that. Right. Now I feel terrible. Exactly. So. I mean, they, they, don't sell, they don't sell Pringles individually. They send them that, that giant stack. That's right? correct. So you open that can, yeah. you're just, uh, it's Pandora's box It's like all a over. corn silo of <laughs> Pringles, right? Exactly. You have to climb to the top and take the lid off. Yeah, so. exactly. All right, Dave. Um, have we said what we needed to say about this? And probably a lot that we didn't need to say. Probably a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So I think so we, should we wrap it up? I think we, we're up against so it. We got to get out of here. Uh, Jeff, why exactly do we have to get out of here? Well, because, well, did you hear that pounding on the door in the yeah, background? Yeah, what is that? That's the, There's some executives from Nabisco. Nabisco. Oh, the uh, National Biscuit Company. That's that's what that is? That's what Nabisco stands for. I never What did that. you think it was? Well, I, I don't like think a, about these things. A Comanche word or something like that? <laughs> something like that. No, it's Nabisco, the National Biscuit Company. They've got this new product. Yeah. Called Uncrustables. 
I'm not making this up. What is this? What is this? It's a it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a little pocket. Oh no! And all the crust has been taken off, and it's sold in an individual an individual uh, bag. You haven't seen the Uncrustables? That sounds so nasty. Yeah, it's like that mafia movie, right? What well, the 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 Untouchables? The Uncrustables. Uncrustables. Oh I, I recently encountered this product, and it reminded me of Huggable portions. There we go. Right, yeah. Uncrustables. But I, I I take it they're not happy about our comments about the Fig Newton. You know, they want to get in here and yep. they want to straighten us out on the Fig Newtons. Yeah, exactly. But before Maybe we go, give us some free samples. I hope so. Before we go, can you say something about the Moss method? Yes, I'll try to be brief. The right. Moss method is a way for you to go from uh, neophyte to, to erudite. Yes, if you don't know any Greek or you only know a little bit, but you want to know a lot more, sign up for my class. It's got forty different lessons, uh, very carefully explained, uh, deep, precise, concise videos, which will teach you Attic and Koine Greek, that of the classical world and of the New Testament. It's a great value. It's possible there are better Greek programs out there. I haven't surveyed them all, but I am very confident this is the best one for the price. It is an excellent value. And if they go to mossmethod.com, they can see everything they need to know. Absolutely. That's right. right. And they get office hours with me every Friday where we discuss the Greek language. Sounds great. Now, what about LLPSI? Yes. So for the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, Hans Orberg's wonderful program, I have a Latin course which takes you from the ground up. So if you know no Latin or you're a Latin teacher and you want to learn how to teach others, reading, writing, speaking Latin, this course is for you. So go to latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. I also have more than 1,900 free Latin videos available at latinperdm.com. 1,900? 1,900. Wow. Almost reaching the 2K mark. Fantastic. I've been doing this for going on eight years now. So there's a massive library of material. Almost any author you can think of, you can find at least one lesson there. Excellent. Well, we got some people to thank, as always. First and foremost, uh, Mishka, our wonderful engineer who puts this all together in record time. Um, who are these guys that are making this music? In yeah, our- thanks, Mishka. The guys making the music are Scott Van Zen, uh, a cross between, what, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix, yeah. this, this guy, and uh, Van Halen. He can play the guitar like you would not believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mr. Ken Tamplin, who has the Vocal Academy. So they generously uh, gave us the music for the intro, the outro, and the bumper music. Check out their stuff online. Yeah, don't hesitate to get in touch with us if you want to have a, an awesome shout-out like Carrie did at the top of this one. Right to Dave at Dave at nauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at nauseum.com. Don't forget the V in the word ad nauseum. What if they want to get a t-shirt? Well, go to nauseum.com. Check us out. You can, you can scroll through past episodes. Check out the store. Pick yourself up a t-shirt. Leave a review at Apple iTunes mm-hmm. or Spotify. Yep. Everything, everything helps um, uh, get us more visibility. So, Dave, what are we doing next week? Well, we're kind of going to keep that um, under wraps for now. Okay. We may come back to the second half. Uh, we may come to the second half of Aeneid Book 9 or go in a slightly different direction. Okay. Yep. So stay tuned. We'll see uh, We'll see what happens. And Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot, I believe. Yes. This comes from the author of a famous book on style, Strunken White, right? E.B. White. People may know him also from Charlotte's Web right. and... What else is he doing? Stuart Little. Oh, I didn't even know. Trumpet of the Swan. Yeah. And this is what he says. It was a delicious meal. Skim milk, wheat middlings, leftover pancakes, half a donut, the rind of a summer squash, two pieces of stale toast, a third of a ginger snap, a fish tail, one orange peel, several noodles from a noodle soup, the scum off a cup of cocoa, an ancient jelly roll, a strip of paper from the lining of the garbage pail, and a spoonful of raspberry jello. What a feast. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.